Hello, and welcome to the second episode of Coffee and Cocktails. I am your host, Anne Wand. On today's show, we'll be discussing part two of episode one's discussion on ECRs in the job market. On this episode, we will discuss what academics look for when reading through ECR job applications, while also talking about the additional responsibilities that come with being a full-time lecturer, reader, and professor. Our guests for today are Dr. Nicolette Makovicki of the Area Studies Department and Dr. Robert Parkin of the Institute of Social and Cultural Anthropology, both from Oxford University, and Dr. Pietro Antonio Sasso from Southern Illinois University. Thank you for joining us. As per usual, we'll start off by having each of you tell us what drink you are having for the show, followed by a little bit about yourself. Nikki, would you like to start? I would. Thank you. I am having a gin and tonic. Ooh, excellent, excellent. Well, what should I say about myself? Well, I'm a lecturer in Russian Eastern European Studies um, at the University of Oxford. Um, and I have been doing research for about a decade in Central Europe, in Slovakia and Poland, um, mostly looking at sort of informal economy. Wonderful. Thank you very much. And uh, Bob, could you tell us a bit about yourself and what you are drinking? Well, I'm drinking just um, instant coffee. So amongst other things, I'm an instant coffee drinker. Uh, but I'm also a lecturer in anthropology um, at the Anthropology Institute in Oxford. Uh, I've been in the job since 2002. But for also for the last 10 years, I've been director of graduate studies, 10 years or so. I can't quite remember when I started. So I've been quite heavily involved in uh, administration, especially student administration, uh, throughout that period. I'm about to give that up, in fact, because uh, in a month I shall be retiring. But uh, And we will be very sad, by the way. Very, very sad. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Uh, and Pete, could you tell us what you're drinking and a little bit about yourself? Uh, I am drinking Starbucks, you know, as Such American, an American, I guess. <laughs> Normal Starbucks, just black. Uh, I wish it had alcohol in it, but it's it's 9 a.m. here, so I'll wait until 10. Um, yeah, I'll wait until lunch. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so about me, uh, I have been a professor for I'm now in my sixth year. I'm approaching uh, tenure finally. Um, I'll be applying for that, and um, I research higher education administration. Uh, which looks at uh, contemporary environments of university campuses and student culture. Excellent. Well, as all three of you know, I gave you a little assignment. All of you done an excellent job um, assisting me with this. Uh, but this podcast, podcast in particular, is quite an important one. Uh, the first podcast, obviously, we talked to several early career researchers who were discussing some of the issues they were having regarding applying for jobs. And then this podcast is to design, well, at least the first part is to function as um, in order to dispel the myths for early career researchers working on jobs applications. So I've asked each of you before the show to create a short list of checklist items you normally look for when going through applications. The objective of this first list was to give early career researchers an understanding of how the job application process works. So since this is a rather extensive list, um, I've divided it up into four parts. The first part uh, is with, for those who are looking for postdoctoral or research offer pos positions. 
The second will look at temporary lectureship positions. The third is for those applying for permanent posts. And then the fourth is any additional advice you may have for those early career researchers applying for the job market. So starting with part one, um, part one, subsection one, postdoctoral research offer posts. Nikki, could you just give us a bit of advice on what you would have for those who are looking for postdoc positions? Yeah, I mean, if you're looking for a postdoc position, I think you've got to understand from the perspective of, of people looking for someone to join their team as a postdoc officer, um, I think they're looking for someone with a particularly strong research uh, background, someone who can help them work out a methodology, develop a solid methodology. Um, they need someone they can rely on to do really good uh, research in whatever field you're doing. So, for example, for an anthropologist like me, someone who does good field work or has a good field work track record, um, and someone who can potentially um, also do a lot of the organizational stuff that comes along with administering a, a large grant. Okay, that's very useful. And Bob, you also had some comments regarding those applying specifically for postdocs. Uh, what suggestions or advice do you have? Uh, well, one thing is that these days, especially um, funding bodies, at least in this country, often want institutional backing. Mm. So uh, you may have to go through a whole process within the your chosen institute first before you actually sort of get permission, as it were, to apply to the Leverhulme, the ESRC, or whoever it is. So our department has a committee for that. Uh, which is called the Research Committee. Um, and then um, there are various sort of modalities, I suppose, of postdoc, uh, some postdoc research. Some are ones that you initiate yourself and, and go through these sort of hoops to do that. Sometimes, though, a, perhaps a more senior academic will um, start a project. Um, he or she himself will be a principal investigator, so-called, the so-called PI, and um, that person may well advertise for actually both doctoral students, but also postdocs to take a part on take part in the in the research. Uh, so those are some of the, the the ways one might start looking and going about it. As I say, at least in this country. Right. Um, one thing I did notice is that all three of you talked about the importance of publications. Uh, Nikki, you specifically had talked about the importance of having strong research and publication credentials. Um, seeing as Pete hasn't had a chance to speak yet, could you tell me, Pete, what uh, a good publication record looks like? Well, um, <clears throat> I would clarify, too, that it depends on what academic field you're, you're in and I think what research agenda you have. You know, um, if you're in the humanities in, like, history or English um, compared to the social sciences like anthropology or sociology – um, single peer-reviewed art, or sorry, rather, single-authored peer-reviewed journals uh, carry more weight in the social sciences as opposed to, uh, and in history and and English in the humanities, you're writing a lot um, on your own. It's not as collaborative as it is in the social sciences. Um, you know, and if you're researching in education, um, in my field, you do a lot of c uh, c collaborative writing. So if you're first author, that carries more weight than if you're the third author. So 
uh, I think think it really depends on your on your field of study and what you're researching. But um, a good publication record, if you're coming out of your PhD program, um, I think the expectation is you need to have uh, publications while you are a PhD student. Okay. Um, and I realize this might come across as a, a silly question, but it is something that comes across at the, comes out at the pub maybe after a few pints. Uh, but is there a magic number of publications that uh, academics are looking for when browsing through uh, ECR applications? Mm. And that's for all three of you. Um, I just, um, I'd like to answer that, but I, I'd just like to say um, what Pete just said about having published while or as you're finishing your PhD is not as common in the UK. Um, and may mm. even you may even be dissuaded by your supervisor because of issues of publishing parts of your thesis while you're mm. before you've been examined. Mm. So, mm. you know, again, there's differences partly because the US system, the, the PhD is actually much longer. Um, in the UK, you may be expected to finish up within three years, which leaves very little time, you know, to actually do the research and write up as well as, as publish alongside. And I, for example, was told um, when I did my PhD that I could not include any material that I had already had peer reviewed and published. Okay. So therefore, I had to wait to publish things, you know, once once I'd actually been examined. So I think there's there are differences there as well that that you know you can be aware of. Um, I don't think there's a magic number. I think it depends really. Well, it depends how long you're out of your your doctoral studies. Um, but I would say you know if you've got um, perhaps one, maybe two publications within twelve months of finishing, that's that's already really good. Um, so, you know, I, and, and I think it's very variable. Some people put a lot of effort into publishing their book straight away. So turning their thesis into a book publication and therefore there'll be quite a, a long gap of say a couple of years where enough that they're not, um, you know, they don't seem to be publishing anything and then they come out with a book. Others tend to pick and choose a few chapters out of the thesis and turn them into um, turn them into uh, publications immediately. Um, and it's it's various different strategies that that work for different people and in different disciplines. As as Pete pointed out, there may be different um, traditions as well. Okay. Can I maybe come in? Absolutely. I think, um, I think uh, there's less collaborative work actually in the social sciences as well in the UK and Europe, generally mm. speaking. And certainly less than there is in the, in the hard sciences. Um, again, I don't think there's a magic number. I think one thing you've got to sort of uh, reckon with is the length of time it can take to get published. Uh, even in a, a respectable journal, it can take up to two years sometimes. At least once, you, once the, the, your article's been accepted, you can cite it as such. Uh, but it may not come out at a sort of useful period. Um, the other thing about collaborative work is... Um, it's difficult to, to work out sometimes who has written what, so to speak. Um, a, an applicant may present a, a particular article that's jointly written, but you don't know how much his, his or her own input has actually been into that. So I would sort of guard against um, submitting those, if at all possible, really. Okay, that's very useful. Uh, one other item before we move on to the next uh, subsection is regarding research proposals. 
and the qualities that are expected of research proposals. I know that this is something that you had mentioned, Bob, uh, when I asked for you know any specifications. And you had said that when it comes to writing research proposals, you need to have an originality of topic followed by an originality of approach. And I was wondering if you could expand on those two things. Uh, yeah, obviously, that's the kind of ideal situation. I think originality is is, is not easy in uh, anthropology, probably not in other disciplines as well. Um, many times I've come up with a good idea only to discover that someone like Marcel Mose had discovered it decades before or something like that. Uh, but even so... Um, there are 7 billion people in the world. Uh, anthropologists haven't got round to all of them yet. Uh, so at least thematically, you should be able to find something that's relatively original. You don't want it so original that, that it's completely divorced from whatever is, has, done, has uh, sort of been done before. Topicality, that is also something to look at, though it's perhaps less, less intrinsic. But... Yeah, originality of theme, originality of treatment of that theme. Uh, funding bodies also stress methods quite a lot, uh, originality of methods. I mean, the ESRC, for example, are always very uh, keen on that. Uh, again, it's difficult, but if you can pull it off, then uh, that will undoubtedly enhance your, your project. Also, theoretically, uh, again, not easy, but if you can de develop at least... Um, some theoretical insights, some insights that, that cast light on other people's theories in some way and can propose to do that through your research. I think that is also, uh, as I say, enhances your project considerably. That's great. Um, as for kind of, you know, due to time constraints, I thought we would kind of merge subsection two and three, looking at temporary lectureship positions versus permanent posts. Nikki, you had quite a few interesting comments to make about this, so I was wondering if you could tell us the difference between what's required when applying for a temporary lectureship versus what may be required when applying for a permanent post. Yeah, thanks. I'll just, um, I'll just say that I'm, I'm speaking again from the UK perspective, um, which is different from the US perspective, which maybe Pete can then talk about, because the, the question of temporary versus permanent is a, is a slightly different setup in the UK. But for a temporary lectureship, I, I think that, you know, what's important for a department is to look for someone who's a very capable educator someone who has a relevant experience teaching and who's going to do a good job mentoring and supervising students and someone who enriches the research program um, and particularly, and we can talk about the REF or the REF um, if, if you want. But Absolutely. If, if you're nearing the end or the, the REF period, that point where, you know, they're, they're, they're going to start gathering and evaluating um, publications in each institution you know, the, the committee will also look for what kind of publications are, are, are you, you know, a candidate has come out with. Are they, so to speak, refable? Are they something that the institution could submit? But I think with temporary lectureships, it is often about, you know, plugging a hole maybe in teaching provision um, or expanding a certain, uh, you know, you know, teaching a provision for students. And therefore, teaching does, you know, have quite a strong kind of... Um, part of the recruitment process for permanent posts um you know it's also it's also um uh, an important point um in terms of you know looking for someone who will either complement um what's being taught in the department or take it in a new direction um but really publications take first place together with grant income for a permanent post 
And this is why in the UK, people often get a permanent post after, say, having a postdoc or two postdocs, because you need to kind of accumulate those publications um, and try to, to get a few grants. They don't have to be big grants, but, you know, show that you've been able to get smaller grants along the way to, to fund your research. Um, so those two things are, are very important. And also administration and um, experience in administration is very important for a permanent post. Um, so, you know, the experience that you have with things like recruiting or, um, you know, and, you know, looking at students who are applying or doing student mentoring, et cetera, all of these things um, play, play, come into play as well. Okay, excellent. Uh, Pete, Bob, what do you have to say regarding those two elements? Um, should I just start? Because we'll sort of continue the UK theme, perhaps. Absolutely. I mean, one, one reason for temporary appointments is to replace somebody who's gone on research leave. I myself originally was appointed for three years to replace uh, somebody who had got a lever home. Um, and then my my post was gradually extended for various reasons. Somebody retiring, so they wanted a, a temporary replacement. There's often a gap between someone retiring and that person being replaced, perhaps of up to a year. Uh, and then for various reasons, I just um, stayed on and stayed on and stayed on, and finally the job was made permanent. Um, so temporary jobs can lead to permanent ones in certain circumstances. On the other hand, um, they can finish fairly abruptly, and you have to seek for something else. It's also, I think, true that uh, in this country, that in a sense, even permanent jobs start off being temporary. Uh, you have to have your appointment uh, confirmed, what I think in the, in the States is called tenure track as well. So um, uh, there are those sort of things to, to keep in mind. Uh, yes, teaching, uh, administration, probably fa fairly light, probably not major jobs, uh, but nonetheless, uh, some kind of um, low-level administration of some sort. Also examining, almost certainly as well, at some point along the, along the way, maybe just marking rather than setting papers. Okay. Um, but yes, um, and it, it, obviously it can give you a good all-round experience, which you can build on for the future. Okay. And before we move on to um, Pete's experience with the U.S. education system, could you please, um, please briefly describe what REF stands for and why it is so important in the U.K. system? Um, good, good question. I think, is it Research Excellence Framework? Is, is that right, yes. Nikki? Yes. Um, I, I haven't had much to do, do with it myself. Uh, and also the rules are changing. We're in between um, uh, reviews at the moment. Uh, one thing that's changed is, is that if you um, if you move departments within the period, you'll no longer be able to take your publications with you because uh, there was a period when um, institutions were poaching each other's staff, basically, in order to boost their publications. But I think that's going to end. So there, there are changes of that sort. Uh, also, you need to be in post. Uh, you need to have a funded uh, post in order to contribute to the REF, and you need to be in post on the date on the applicable date as well, mm. uh, when the the data is captured. Uh, um, but um, sorry, does that answer your question? Yeah, it, it sounds quite intense, but I get the yeah. impression it's not an easy process anyway. No, um, in our department, there's usually one person responsible for assembling all the information and so on. And it is very important because a lot of our government funding comes from that. Okay. Uh, it does depend on it, yeah. Okay. And Pete, what is your experience regarding temporary lectureships versus permanent, or should I say tenure posts in the U.S.? Yeah, so I'll give a little bit of background. Um, so tenure here really varies by the institutional typology. You know, 
in the United States, our higher education system is not nationalized. It's decentralized. Uh, and so it, it varies by state. And if you think about each state as a country, um, their, their structure and oversight varies between themselves. Um, and then further, uh, you know, it varies by the institutional type, um, based on its classification and, you know, institutional mission. So, uh, long story short is that a temporary post at a research intensive university, which would be comparable to an Oxford, right. Um, or a Cambridge, uh, compared to, what we call like a a regional master's comprehensive university that's more teaching focused um, or a smaller residential college, um, a lecture, it it varies. So at a research institution, you're focused more on research in 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 a temporary post, whereas at a smaller institution that's more teaching focused, um, certainly your focus is on students and your and your pedagogy um and you have what's sometimes referred to as a scholarship of practice so what's acceptable is to do research on teaching of your field to students um and there's an emphasis like you would have in k-12 in public education on teaching so a lecturer role is somewhat unique here in in the U.S. Uh, compared to tenure track, that's more research focused. Um, and the, what's what's interesting about the labor market here, um, and even going to postdocs too, um, is I we're finding that a lot of the younger uh, faculty who come out of um, the PhD programs um, are assuming postdocs. And so those are normally a two or three year rotation and they're, and they are grant dependent and then they'll assume a lectureship. And then eventually they, you know, you will, you will make your way into some kind of tenure track role. Um, I was lucky. I was able to like avoid all that. So um my PhD is from a research uh, intensive institution, so I was trained to do research. I identify as a researcher, um, so I was able to slide right into a tenure track role. So um, it really depends on your academic training at the doctoral level as well. Okay, that's that's really useful. And I think one thing that I think we'd all agree on is that um, even though we're all sort of aiming for similar positions or <coughs> tried to aim for similar positions, that there isn't one way specifically to get a permanent post or get a temporary post, which I think is really important. Uh, finally, before we move on to part two, I wanted to focus on any additional advice you might have for early career researchers in terms of how to juggle the variety of responsibilities they have alongside applying for um, job positions. Nikki, you put together some really interesting points that I wanted to focus in on. Uh, the first element being uh, cre- when you said create, create a hierarchy of what is most important and concentrate on that. And if you could elaborate, that would be wonderful. Yeah, so I think one of the things I spent a long time feeling, you know, as, as I was starting my career was I didn't know 
what was the thing that I was supposed to do to get a job. I felt like I had to do everything. I had to go to conferences and give papers. I had to look for jobs, write grant applications, try to publish, teach to get experience and so on. And you feel torn in, in many different directions. And I think coming out of that experience, the, the one thing I would say is, you know, create this hierarchy of what is most important um, and, you know, don't spend, I think, you know, too much time on what I would think is in some way CV fillers, you know, that I'm not saying that these are bad things or not, not good in their own way. They're, they're very useful, but things like conferences, um, conferences are really good for networking. They're good for getting to know the people who are, you know, um, key figures in your, you know, sub-discipline or whatever to get to know people to, to create these um, to create these connections, um, but one of my advice is don't spend too long writing your papers. So give yourself basically a day. Um, take something interesting, relevant from your thesis, and convert it into a, a twenty-minute um, paper, and, and give yourself sort of twenty-four hours to do that in. If you're working with brand new material, you know it'll take two or three days rather than a day. But I think it's important to kind of weigh up the the sort of cost benefits. Um, and um, you know, conferences, as I said, are good for networking. But in terms of actually giving a paper, um, you know, people rarely remember exactly what you said, you know, a year or two later. Um, I find that, unfortunately, the feedback is also rarely as good as, as you expect. So, again, that's sort of about weighing up um, how much time you're willing to put into things and how much relatively you think you'll, you'll get out on the other side. Um, same with teaching experience. Um, again... You're, you're finished your PhD, you might need the money. Um, I certainly did need the money. So it's tempting to take on lots of teaching gigs and think, okay, you know, I'll have teaching experience on my CV, this is great. But it, it takes away a lot of time um, in preparation, marking, examination from, you know, writing those all important publications. Um, and so, you know, my advice is, you know, think about again, you know, how relevant is this? Is it close to what your, your you know, your subfield, your subdiscipline, um, or is it, you know, um, uh, quite a lot of work um, that's not very well paid and perhaps diverting your, your energy um, somewhere else? Wonderful. Thank you. Um, Bob, oh, sorry, continue. Did you have something else? Nope. Okay, great. Um, one thing, Bob, you had said uh, when working on research proposals, and, and this really stuck out to me, uh, and this is especially for those who um, are trying to figure out, you know, early career researchers are trying to figure out, again, what do I do? How do I balance my life? How do I make this interesting so that people are attracted, you know, and they know what I have to offer? You had said, make sure to, um, when you're in the U.S., being up front is more acceptable, acceptable, but may be seen as boasting in Britain or Europe. And I think, it, you know, I think of the phrase, you know, we're two countries divided by a language. And I think, um, at least from my experience living in the U.K. off and on for 10 years, there have been moments when I have presented myself in what I thought was a very forward manner, and then I realized I may have offended half the room. So um, I wondered if you could kind of expand on that in terms of, um, how to carry yourself, at least for the UK market. 
Incidentally, it also applies to things like references, where American referees are much more um, elaborate and enthusiastic. Colorful. I think colorful is the word. Colorful. Um, whereas uh, uh, those in, well, as you progressively go east, I think they sort of dumb down more and more, perhaps. But anyway, um, yes, I, I think. Um, it's a balance between obviously asserting yourself and giving a good argument and so on without blocking out other possibilities that people uh, might, you know, come up with or think about. Um, and I think uh, if, you're, if you're too enthusiastic to a British audience, it might um, simply be less, uh, make less of an impression, perhaps, and even a negative impression in some respects. Sure. You, you are, as an American yourself, Anne, I'm sure you're familiar with British Reserve, having lived I've learned from my mistakes, let's put it that uh, way. It's maybe not a big issue, really, but um, I think there is, there is a difference in that respect. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and Pete, before we move on, do you have any additional advice as well for any um, early career researchers who might be listening at the moment? Um. You know, um, I think both of the other speakers um, had sage advice. Um, I would say time management is really important. Um, and conferences are wonderful. But um, I think what matters is the publication and the teaching. Um, and you got to find sort of it's it's like the balance between the two. And it's almost like, you know, and it's a pendulum in a sense where it swings left and right and you got to find a way to kind of balance out the pendulum. Um, and so uh, going to conferences is wonderful, but you, I know of a lot of academics that make that a major component of their, of their lifestyle. So, yeah. Uh, if I'm just come back in, conferences uh, certainly are useful. Don't forget, sometimes they can actually lead, lead to publications. And, and a job, yes. Uh, possibly, Please. Possibly. <laughs> um, also, on writing your paper, um, there is a, a more of a passion these days to speak from notes rather than prepare a set text in, in sort of, you know, nice flowery language or whatever. And I think that makes things easier and more expeditious as well. Absolutely. Um, there, was, there was something else that occurred to me and I've completely forgotten it. Okay, sorry. <laughs> so, okay, we can always come back. Uh, again, I realize we're a bit short on time. So what I'd like to do for part two, um, part two I also gave you a bit of homework and asked you to create a short list of additional responsibilities that come with being a full academic once you get that job. And this is for those early career researchers who are unfamiliar with how academia works behind the scenes. Um, you, all three of you put together wonderful, wonderful lists. Um, but I think what we should do is start with Pete. And then while Pete talks about two issues that really came to his mind, uh, Bob and Nikki, I'd like you to condense your ideas down to maybe three important items. And anything, obviously, that we don't discuss on the show, we can always put onto uh, our website next week, just uh, so people can get more of an idea of, of the advice you may have. But Pete, starting with you, uh, you had said that two bits of additional advice that you'd wish you'd been given to you was one regarding geographic mobility, and the second was culture of free labor in terms of editing, reviewing, etc. So if you could expand on those, that would be great. Yeah, um, I think here in the United States, and particularly I would include Canada as well, um, uh, Professors have to move to find jobs um, just because 
there's we're so vast and so and so complex um and so in my career either in academic administration or student services or now as a faculty member i'm on my fourth state you know, um, about a year ago in my position now, I moved halfway across the country. I drove 14 hours in a, in a, in a rented U-Haul truck, you know? Um, and so no one talks about um, kind of attacks on your personal life in moving around so much and the sacrifices you make personally um, in doing so. So that's one thing that uh, you have to start over, you know, with each new job you, you actually take and you have to move around. Um, that's probably one of the things that, that a new faculty member or lecturer should strongly consider um, is that you do have to, to relocate. That's, I, think, I think that that's an expectation here in the United States and Canada. Um, as far as <laughs> there's a culture of free labor as well, um, in terms of peer review, having to serve as a reviewer on, on panels at, at conferences, as a moderator at conferences, um, peer review on, on, you know, on academic journals, uh, and none of that, that all counts towards service. Um, and here in the United States, um, most of the institutions have a requirement for uh, what I would call mostly university service. So we serve on a lot of committees and we contribute to like the academic bureaucracy in a sense. So we're always doing a lot of free labor and that's a time that that's a time vampire away from your teaching, away from your scholarship pursuits. So um and trying to moderate and navigate through all of those requirements uh, is extremely challenging. Okay, thank you very much, Bob. Mm -hmm. um, so, so what the administrative? Side uh, of just things, three like, main yeah. items that you feel like are are quite important um, that maybe ECRs wouldn't even know to take into consideration. Okay, well, if I can just draw on my own experience as director of graduate studies here, um, I, I was I was being heavily involved in. Uh, uh, sort of guiding students through the process of uh, getting to their degrees, um, trying to solve their problems, uh, if any arise, devising them generally, and so on and so forth. So that that that's something that takes up a fair bit of time. Um, possibly or potentially admissions work, uh, that can also be pretty intensive. Uh, and as I think I said, I was admissions officer for quite a bit of this time as well as uh, director of studies. And then also policy issues. Uh, committee work, uh, where policies are thrashed out and changed, changes in regulations and so on. I mean, one recent policy issue here has been whether we should introduce Turnitin, which is a uh, an anti-plagiarism uh, software uh, process, which we're beginning to, in fact. So those kinds of issues as well. Um, I'm, I suppose my own job is a, is a fairly senior one, um, and I don't think uh, a temporary lecturer would have anything like that kind of uh, burden. Uh, but um, some lower level kind of administration possibly, yeah. Uh, great. Thank you so much, Bob. And uh, Nikki, do you have any three additional responsibilities that, you know, kind of came to your mind in terms of things that, you know, early career researchers might not know to take into consideration? Yeah, I think, I mean, 
the, the question of, of administrative burden is, is really, that was probably the single biggest shock that, that I had going into a, a full-time academic post. So I think what the others have said is really important in that sense. Um, but I think also one thing that surprised me and that people should be aware of is the huge run-up that goes into researching and writing a grant proposal. Um, and particularly in the UK system, you haven't necessarily had to write a, a sort of substantial proposal to get into a doctoral program. You know, they've asked for maybe a thousand words, etc. Um, and, you know, there's no budgeting involved and so on. And when you actually then start uh, applying for postdocs or larger grants, um, there's often a huge run up. You have to, you know, not just write uh, a, say, five or even 10 page uh, proposal, perhaps involving other team members, but also, you know, to deal with research services. There's often several uh, internal evaluations that go on within the department where your colleagues may want to read your application, give you advice and so on. It has to be approved before you're, you're allowed to submit it. Um, and then there's uh, dealing with all the finances behind it, which is also you know, a, a kind of new world if you haven't been introduced to that before um, and this goes into everything from you know hiring research assistants what is the regulation about that visas all of these things that you get involved in organizing um, so that takes often a lot longer than you imagine um, as as an early career researcher maybe fresh out of a doctoral program you know you have a great research idea but it's much more than just sitting down and, and, and forming that into an interesting research proposal. There's a whole other kind of side of, of practical work that needs, needs to be done. So that's the one thing. You know, give yourself time, um, a lot of time to, to prepare these grants because there is all of this other work and a lot of other people within the institution that need to be involved in it. Um, and... Um, a lot of the organiz there's a lot of organizational work as well and associational work I think which is also a surprise um, but which can be very rewarding to get involved in so looking into different um, interest groups for example um, within you know typically I'm involved in some groups within the American Association of Anthropologists so there's different um, subgroups there and there's all sorts of very interesting organizational tasks again with a caveat that you know you need to weigh up the time and, and how much of this is, is valuable to you, but there's a lot to get involved in there where you can make an impact also in the way the discipline is going. Um, and I think, you know, there's one more point that I want to bring up for early career people with regards to some of the things that Pete said, which is, you know, the geographical um, kind of uh, the need to be geographically flexible. And it's also with regard to work-life balance. And this is specifically also about, you know, gender differences and about early career uh, females were early career researchers, because often what happens is you finish your doctoral work at a time you're thinking maybe of settling down, maybe of hanging a child. Um, and these things can be very difficult or, or maybe you already have children at this point or will have children by the time you've done a postdoc or two. And those things, you know, have to be factored in when you're thinking about things like mobility and uh, going for different different kinds of jobs. Um, so that's sort of an added complication that, you know, I think we spent a lot of time talking about the technicalities of, you know, finishing up and, and starting a career as as 
an early career researcher, but there's, you know, there's a whole kind of private life side of it that, that is not external to it. It's, it's part of it as well. Well, and I think that's a really good transition in terms of looking at work-life balance. Um, Pete and Bob, do you have any comments in terms of any issues that may have arisen that you hadn't anticipated before? Um, I guess I'll go first. Yeah, I, I think um, work-life balance, it's um, I'm, I'm uneducated, unclear as to what the like schedule is like in the UK. Uh, but here in the States across the pond, um, you know, I teach at night, you know, I teach from, uh, like 5 PM to nine at night through th three nights a week. And then I have students who are engaging in work for their thesis. Um, so I'm a, you know, I'm a, you know, that's why, that's why I'm a night owl, you know, so it's challenging to be awake in the morning. And so I have a opposite schedule from the rest of the world, you know? So those are some of the challenges you have um, as a faculty member is that you have weird non-traditional hours, you know, and they aren't stable hours. So you have to think about things like gr grocery shopping at weird times, you know? So that's just something that you have to be flexible with a lack of stability in your schedule. Okay. Thank you. And Bob? Yeah, I've had that as well, certainly. Um, <clears throat> at one time, for example, I was teaching down at the University of Kent in Canterbury and sort of stopping up off at a college in London to do some teaching, which um, usually went on in the evenings, in fact. So that, that was a li little bit of a hectic But could time. you give Pete an idea of how far Kent is uh, from London? It's uh, not right it's down about, the road from each It's other. about eight, uh, 70 miles, something like that. Yeah, okay. Okay. So sort of interrupting a t train journey in London and doing a bit of teaching and then carrying on possibly by bus and getting there about wow. 11 o'clock at night yeah. and then doing teaching the following morning. But since I've been in Oxford, all that has sort of been easier, certainly. I, I think um, two, I'd make two comments. I think in any walk of life, you tend to, as you progress in your career, you t tend to become less of a specialist and more of a manager. And I think academia is no different from that. Uh, and so as you, as you go on, you get more involved in, in uh, not so much routine administration, but policy-making kind of administration, I suppose. Um, the other thing is um, um, there are some people in this profession who will say, right, I'm just going to do what I need to, and that's it. Um, then there are others, and I, I, without boasting too much, I put myself in this category, who just want to get involved in as much as possible. And I can vouch for that, by the way. You've been awesome. <laughs> uh, because I, I, I do find administration interesting in certain respects, some, some of the time at least. Uh, I didn't become an anthropologist to do administration, but once I got into it, I did find it quite uh, interesting. It also it, it, it brings you closer to the heart of events. I, through my work as director of graduate studies, I got to know pretty much how the system works in our institute. Um, I had a certain amount of influence in shaping things, how things are done, uh, and I found that very rewarding in itself, in fact. Uh, and in fact, it wasn't, um, wasn't that time-consuming. I, I could do my teaching, uh, I could supervise research students, I could also uh, do some research, not as much as I might have done, but I did manage to do some and publish some. Um, so it, it does depend on what attitude you wish to take, and it depends on the level of commitment you wish to give to it. 
Um, and it also depends, of course, on your own family circumstances and how much uh, that, how, many, how much those commitments are going to take up of your time. Uh, so I'm not going to pontificate and say that there's a right way to do it, but I think there are these, uh, at least these two possibilities that one has to think about. So would you say that um, it requires a bit of thinking outside of the box in some respects? Uh, what, actually doing the job itself in certain respects? Well, I mean, or... in terms of, of trying to manage everything. Yeah. Um, well, yes. Uh, I suppose you, you know, some people are, are more efficient than others as well and so on and so forth. Uh, there are all these factors to take into account. I never found it stressful in any sense. It could be time-consuming at certain times, but but less so than I perhaps feared at one point, actually. So um, it depends on oneself, one's general commitments in life, how much one or what one wants to get out of life as well, really. Great. Well, I have one more surprise question for all three of you. And the big question is, if you were to give one tiny bit of advice to those considering academia, what would it be, starting with you, Nikki? That's a good question. <laughs> it's a big one. It's a very big question. Um, I would say, I, I'm going to turn it around and say that the greatest pleasure about this job is that I get to do interesting things. And by this, I mean... I get to solve intellectual puzzles that interest me. I don't get to do this all the time. I mean, there's, you know, plenty of aspects, as there are with any job that you do, that I enjoy less and some I enjoy more. But it is a privilege in itself to be able to go to work and, you know, essentially um, be doing something that's close to your hobby um, and something that you really enjoy uh, genuinely. Um, so, you know, my advice is, um, if, if this is something that sounds attractive, go for it. It's a difficult path. Um, Work-life balance is not much, very much balanced in the beginning, at least. And I don't know whether it is later because, you know, I joke and I say that um, there, is no, there is no other job where the reward for good work is more work. But that's how it works in academia. Um, so the more well-known, for example, you know, your publications get, whatever people start asking you to review things or to contribute to other things. So generate, you know, it generates more work in a sense. Um, but it is, you know, it is a pleasure as well. Okay, great. And Pete? Um, to someone, I would say, uh, it's life of the mind, right? It's a lifestyle, um, I forget the Latin term. It's like lux hominum vitae or something like that in, in Latin, which is like, uh, light the life of man or something like that. I'm trying to think back to my PhD, but it's the idea that we are intellectuals teaching society what we know. And so I think there's a social responsibility to share your knowledge and serve as, as, a repo as a repository of knowledge and to transmit that. So I think there's there's a ethical obligation to, to society that's much higher level and um, it is a life of the mind. So it's not a traditional career, it's not a tra traditional lifestyle. And if you're comfortable integrating that into your life, 
and you're comfortable with the with the weird flow of things, um, it's a great career. It's just, uh, I'd say, neurotically strange and colorful. <laughs> Excellent. And Bob? Um, yeah, I'd agree with all that. Um, I, and also in a world where... Um, really secure jobs are few and far between. It's, um, it's, it is a good profession to follow. Uh, it's as good as many and better than some. Um, and I would just follow your inclination. If that's your inclination to, to have an academic career, go for it. Um, pursue it. Um, don't turn your face against doing other things, perhaps on a temporary basis, to support the lean times as well. For example, I've I've done a lot of uh, sort of editing and revision work, and also translation in my time, while also having a less stable academic career. So it is possible to work things out like that. Uh, but yes, basically follow your inclination. Um, I'm reminded of the words of the Italian writer Boccaccio: "It's better to regret doing something than to regret doing nothing." That's wonderful. Well, thank you for all our guests. That's it from us at Coffee and Cocktails with your host, Anne Wand. Um, I'd like to thank our guests, Nikki, Pete, and Bob, for joining us at the studio this afternoon. And for those of you who've enjoyed the show, I'll be posting additional advice from each of our presenters regarding today's themes on our website, explorationthrougheducation.com. That's one word, lowercase, explorationthrougheducation.com. You're also free to join our Coffee and Cocktails Facebook page at Coffee and Cocktails 1, where you can learn more about upcoming episodes as well as contact me on Twitter at AnneWand1. But that's it for now. Thanks for listening and have a great week.